Welcome everybody to worship this morning. It's great to have you here and a special welcome to those who are visiting us today for the first time. Hope you will feel welcome and comfortable and able to worship God. It is the September break for schools, so we are somewhat depleted as a lot of the parents with children have understandably taken the opportunity to be away. But we are here to worship God and so we hear our opening words from the book of Proverbs. From Proverbs chapter 8. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads she takes her stand. Besides the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal she cries out, To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. O simple ones, learn prudence, acquire intelligence, you who lack it. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. And now we come to prayer, our opening prayers of approach and confession. Let's pray together. Loving God, we have just sung of some of your characteristics, hopefulness, joy, eagerness, faith, kindliness, grace, gentleness, and calm. In these moments of quiet, we each choose just one of these words and savour its implications Know that it shapes your relationship with us, both corporately and personally. Scripture tells us that wisdom calls us, invites us to grow in these self-same qualities that we have seen in you. And yet, all too often... We are lured by other kinds of wisdom. Sometimes we want to be worldly wise, street wise, smarter than the average bear kind of wise. We want to succeed, to do well. And sometimes that leads us to want to outsmart, outwit or outmaneuver other people. We like to compete, to be the best we can, even to win. And sometimes that means we see others as less than ourselves and treat them badly. We are sorry, Lord. Sorry for self-centred ambition and dishonourable attitudes. Sorry that we deny or damage others and in so doing, damage ourselves. Please help us to learn from you, to cultivate true wisdom, the gentle, compassionate wisdom exemplified by Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. The readings this morning 
are taken first from the wisdom of Solomon, starting at chapter 1, verse 16. But the ungodly, by their words and deeds, summoned death, considering him a friend. They pined away and and made a covenant with him, because they were fit to belong to his company. For they reasoned unsoundly, saying to themselves, Short and sorrowful is our life, and there is no remedy when a life comes to its end, and no one has been known to return from Hades. Let us lie and wait for the righteous man, because he is inconvenient to us and opposes our actions. He reproaches us for sins against the law and and accuses us of sins against our training. He professes to have knowledge of God and calls himself a child of the Lord. He, He became to us a reproof of our thoughts. The very sight of him is a burden to us because his manner of life is unlike that of others and his ways are strange. We are considered by him as something base and he avoids our ways as unclean. He calls the last end of the righteous happy and boasts that God is his father. Let us see if his words are true and let us test what will happen at the end of his life. For if the righteous man is God's child, he will help him and will deliver him from the hand of his adversaries. Let us test him with insult and torture so that we may find out how gentle he is and make trial of his forbearance. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to what he says, he will be protected. Thus they reasoned. But they were led astray, for their wickedness blinded them, and they did not know the secret purposes of God, nor hoped for the wages of holiness, nor discerned the prize for blameless souls. For God created us for incorruption and made us in the image of his own eternity. And from James chapter 3, starting at verse 13. Are there people among you who are wise and understanding? They are to prove it by their good lives, by their good deeds, performed with humility and wisdom. But if in your heart you are jealous, bitter and selfish, don't sin against the truth by boasting of your wisdom. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven. It belongs to the world. It is unspiritual and demonic. Where there is jealousy and selfishness, there is also disorder and every kind of evil. But the wisdom from above is pure, first of all. It is also peaceful, gentle, and friendly. It is full of compassion and produces a harvest of good deeds. It is free from prejudice and hypocrisy. And goodness is the harvest that is produced from the seeds the peacemakers plant in peace. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you hypocrites. It's always interesting, isn't it, using the lectionary? It takes us to some surprising readings sometimes. And I found it really challenging and interesting to listen to those passages from Wisdom of Solomon, one of the books that lies as part of what we know as the Apocrypha, but which for um, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox and Roman Catholic Christians is part of the main corpus of Scripture. Very interesting just to have those fresh insights. Today is the last of my sermons based on the letter of James. And next Sunday we have a guest preacher who's going to bring you the last reflection on this really important, practical, down-to-earth book of the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I found this series very challenging indeed, as I've been forced to look very hard at my own attitudes and my own actions. It's been good for me. And I hope it has been good for all of us to spend a decent amount of time looking at one fairly small book of the Bible, if not in meticulous detail, at least pretty much the whole of that book. Now, as we begin our thoughts today, it's probably helpful to remind ourselves that every single book in the Bible was written with a real audience in mind. It was never just somebody sat down and wrote some clever thoughts. The letters especially were written for groups of people, either in response to letters that they'd written or in response to news that had reached the writer about what was happening in their community. And that kind of connects a little bit with what we thought about last week about the speed of communication and the potential for distortion. Whilst we believe these to be God-inspired writings, they are also, first and foremost, the letters sent from one person or group of people who believed in Jesus to another. And that's really important so that we can step back from the text and ask ourselves quite legitimately, well, I wonder why they said that. What on earth was going on that they felt the need to write about this? Hmm, why would they have to be told off for something? What was that about? But at the same time, as we can see a glimpse of the past and construct what we think might have happened, we also find resonances and parallels with our own time. Because at the end of the day, people are still people. And the same kind of topics pop up over and again throughout history. So, in one way, scripture is a window into the past, into what was going on 2,000 years ago and more. And in another, it's a mirror in which we can look and catch sight of ourselves. And I think that's part of the mystery, that it's both those things at once. And that's why sometimes when we read it, if we're really honest, it makes us uncomfortable because it feels a little bit too close to home. So over these last few weeks, we've been trying to think what James is saying as he spells out what it means to be doers of the word. The attitude of gratitude to God, which spills over into generosity of spirit in our own lives. The challenge of making that generosity impartial, not favouring any one people group over another, 
and not trying to curry favour with people who we think have influence. The challenge of responsible use of our words, especially in an age of high-speed communication. Each of these are massive topics. I'm sure there's a PhD in every single one of them and a whole sermon series. We can't just think about them for a few minutes and say, well, that's it, I've got that sorted. But they are things to which we have to return time and time again as we try to live out our discipleship. And if that sounds tough, that's probably because it is. Christianity is not a nice, cosy insurance policy. And the church, no matter how much I love it and how much I adore this particular part of it, it's never going to be a perfect foretaste of heaven because it's got people in it. Like any relationship or any community, it can be very hard work. And what keeps us hanging on in there is the vision. The dream of what it could be like if we fully manage to live out what we believe, what we aspire to. What keeps us from giving up is the audacity to believe that God has given and continues to give us in Christ Things are most wonderful. That the promises of God ultimately can be trusted and one day they will find their perfect expression in God's kingdom of shalom. If I can steal a line from a book or a film, certainly from the film, it may be in the book as well, I haven't read it, The Exotic Marigold Hotel, we could put it like this. It'll be all right in the end, And if it's not all right, it's not the end. Or in more um, poetic theological language, all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Today's passage draws our attention to the characteristics of wisdom consistent with being doers of the word. The very kind of wisdom that anticipates the fulfilment of which we dream. But before we start to think about that, it's perhaps useful just again to remind ourselves of the historical context into which James is writing. Not just that it's a group of people, it's a whole worldview. As you heard Alison read those words from James, you couldn't have failed to notice the influence of a first century dualistic worldview. Language of above and below, of good and evil, a very black and white distinction. It's right, it's wrong, it's good, it's bad. And broadly speaking, in that worldview, male and things stereotypically masculine were identified as good whilst female and things stereotypically feminine were bad. Sorry about that. I'm not entirely clear how much this is a Hellenistic Greek influence and how much it's an influence of Gnosticism, which was also prevalent at the time. But knowing that that worldview exists informs our reading as we see the use of the above-below language in Scripture And it also helps us to realise just how radical 
what Jesus, and even dare I say it, Paul, said about women, because both of them were incredibly positive about women in a worldview where feminine was sort of seen as not so good. And as for me, as a left-handed woman, well, totally beyond the pale. But James had another important influence in the Jewish tradition, where wisdom is personified as female. We began the service by listening to words from the book of Proverbs, a very well-known illustration of that. God's Sophia, a woman who invites people to a lifestyle characterized by attributes that seem very different from those of the ancient patriarchal society. So the context then into which James is writing, there would have been people who saw women as worthless, as bad, and there would have been people who had a strong Jewish tradition of this Sophia wisdom, God, God's feminine side that is really amazing. And he's talking into that context. In that society, women and children were valued only slightly higher than servants. They were basically possessions. And so when James speaks into that, he's turning the worldview upside down. Turning over this idea that a power-based, assertive, macho, male-dominated structure was was right. Because he equates what might be seen stereotypically as that with below. As earthly, sensual, or even demonic. Whereas the gentle, peaceful, friendly perhaps stereotypically feminized or domesticated images are seen as from above, from God. So for those early hearers, that was very challenging indeed. I want to just say two things. Firstly, this is not going to develop into a feminist rant. So those who are fearing that, please don't. And those who are desiring that, well, sorry, It's far too simplistic to equate any characteristic solely with gender. We know that. And the whole concept of gender is one that uh, people still continue to try to understand because it's never that simple to say that's that and that's that. I'm sure every one of us can call to mind an aggressive woman that we have come across. Or a gentle, kind man. Dishonesty and corruption are equally found in men and women, rich and poor. Humility and peacemaking are not the exclusive preserve of any one part of society. What we need to do is not replace one dualism with another. We can't go from saying male bad, female good, to female good, male bad. That's, that's not the answer. We have to find a different way that doesn't work with those dichotomies. It's also important to remind ourselves that structure is essential to the ordering of any society. And what the writer is critiquing is not structure, but the value that informs that structure. If I can quote Walter Wink, you're doing well for quotes today. You don't normally get this many quotes from me in a sermon. Walter Wink has written very extensively on this topic, and he has said this. The powers are good, the powers are fallen, 
The powers can be redeemed. In other words, structure of itself is necessary, it's good, it's healthy. Structure and organisation is broken. But structure and organisation, through God's transforming spirit and power, can be made good and what it was meant to be. Nations, organisations, churches and even families need structure to function. I guess we all have our little routines at home. It's what that looks like. It's what we want to think about. What this passage does then, dramatically and shockingly, is cut through the societal norms of the day and say, there is a better way. And it's not rocket science. Not that they had rocket science in those days. But it isn't rocket science. But it's not a, new, it's not a quick fix. James doesn't come up with a new structure. He comes up with a new set of attitudes which will transform the existing one. He's not going to overthrow the status quo. Remember, at the time, there were people that desperately wanted the Romans out. They wanted to change everything. And actually, there's a hint of that in what he writes. The word jealousy that we use has the same root as zeal. And, of course, the zealots were the people who wanted to overthrow Rome. So there could actually be a hint in what he says in talking about jealousy of saying, this overthrowing attitude, this is not helpful. What we need to do is transform the inside of our community so that that then becomes a model of the kingdom of God for others to to look at. I have to say, one of the challenges of preaching on James is it's actually remarkably uncomplicated. I was chatting to somebody this week and said, you know, last week I could have just said, well, that's what it says, off you go. Because it's kind of obvious. It doesn't need me to spell it out to you. And yet, for me and I hope for you, in the listening, in the pondering of that text, in hearing it read aloud, we begin to hear God's voice speaking deep into our own hearts. James sets out the characteristics of two kinds of wisdom, one which reflects everyday experience and the other to which his readers should aspire. Now, he does the compare and contrast. I'm not going to, because you can go and read that for yourselves. When Bible translators prepare their texts, they have to make choices on how they render individual words and phrases. And I love that. It really fascinates me because every time I read it in a different translation, I spot something different because that little translational choice shows me something new. Unfortunately, most English translations of James 3 verse 13 lose something important. The Good News version says, and you'll all remember this because you only heard it a few minutes ago, those who are wise will demonstrate this through, quote, good deeds performed with humility and wisdom. The NIV says, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And even the NRSV, the one beloved of Bible colleges and theological colleges in the English-speaking world, and arguably the most accurate there currently is, says, gentleness born of wisdom. 
every single one of those is not quite what the Greek says, which would be more accurately translated as either wise meekness or gentle wisdom. In other words, it's not two attributes, it's one attribute. Now, you might think that's just semantics, but what we have is a contrast here between worldly wisdom and gentle wisdom. And as we hear of gentle wisdom, perhaps you, like me, find coming back from the back of your mind some of the words of Jesus. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This wisdom from above, this God-originated wisdom, seen most fully in the life and teaching of Jesus, has got nothing to do with power and domination and everything to do with gentleness and humility. How often when we speak of God or of Jesus, we use power language. We talk about kings and lords. And so we miss the other side, the divine attributes of gentleness, humility, meekness, mercy, loving kindness. I know Graham Kendrick is a bit passé, and I know he's not everybody's cup of tea. But I think his songs, Meekness and Majesty, and The Servant King, are among the few that genuinely try to hold together those characteristics within the Godhead. When you came in, you would have found on your chairs a little piece of paper which has on it something like attributes of gentle wisdom. And there is a list of seven. There are seven in, in, listed in the book of James. And with a little bit of interpretive variation, because I had about six translations in front of me at the time, um, I've written them down for you. I'm not going to elaborate on any of them. But I would like you to take that piece of paper home with you today and ponder at your leisure, which of these attributes do I already possess? Which of these attributes do I need to develop? And then to use that as a prompt for your own prayer. Just in closing, I want to try to root this back into the way our church functions at Hillhead in all our frailty and all our finitude, in all our succeeding and all our failing. Because just as James's readers had a history and a context, so do we. When the Baptists and other free church traditions came into being, they didn't want the top-down structures they'd inherited with a monarch, a pope, or a bishop, or a priest telling them what they could do as if he, and it would have been he in those days, were the only legitimate mouthpiece for God. Rather, they located authority under Christ within the gathered community. And as members of that community... They covenanted to walk together with God in ways known and to be made made known. In other words, they turned that structure upside down 
but they did so recognising the responsibility that brought with it. They realised that the authority had to be exercised amongst people who were genuinely committed to the values of that community. And so the concept of membership was born. Now I know that we live in an age where membership is very unfashionable, even unpopular, and the temptation is to throw that out and come up with something else. And for some people and some churches, that may be the right thing to do. I feel for us, the challenge is to sort of revisit that in the light of these attributes and say, how do we live out as a covenanted community this gentle wisdom? The early Baptists didn't vote in their meetings. Did you know that? They didn't have a show of hands or a secret ballot. They kept on meeting time and time again until they could reach consensus. <laughs> That's quite timely. It may not be practical for us to do that. But there is something about that gentle wisdom that forces us to slow down a little bit. We face a lot of challenges as we continue to work out what God is calling us to do in this place. And I want to suggest a lot of it is about a journey, not just a destination. But these attributes that we have considered will help us to cultivate that community that God calls us to be. Let's pray together. Eternal God, all-seeing, all-knowing, all-wise, all-good, we come before you acknowledging our lack of understanding and knowledge. There is so much that we do not see clearly, so many things we are uncertain about, so many complicated and confusing areas of life. Grant us faith to live with questions and wisdom in coming to decisions. We know that you are at work in the world And we believe in the final victory of your purpose. Yet it is hard sometimes to see your hand and harder still to make sense of the events that befall us. We see so much that challenges and even seems to contradict our faith. And at times, despite ourselves, our trust is undermined and our confidence shaken. Give us help to hold on to you, knowing that you hold on to us. Teach us that doubts and questions are a part of faith, able to lead us to new insights and a deeper understanding of your purpose. Teach us then to bring both our faith and our doubt to you, confident that you can use both to broaden our knowledge of your love and to enrich our experience of your grace. Your word reminds us that your wisdom brings peace, and we pray today for all who are searching for peace in their lives, those burdened with anxiety, either about themselves or their loved ones, facing difficulties and problems 
to which they can see no solutions. In these difficult economic times, with the lack of job opportunities for young people, we pray that those in authority may have wisdom to know what to do. We pray for those living amongst change and upheaval, especially all those threatened by violence and warfare. And once again, we bring before you the troubled areas of our world. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Israel and Palestine, and nearer to home, Manchester, where two policewomen were killed this past week. God of peace, draw near in comfort, we pray, to all who are grieving today. We pray for those who are frustrated by illness, age or infirmity, unable to do what once was second nature and learning to depend on others. Loving God, draw near to all through Christ. Grant the peace of your presence, the healing of your touch, the blessing of your guidance and the assurance of your constant love so that all may live in hope and look forward in faith through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And so, as we leave this place to return to the everyday, to be part of the world which prizes those things God's wisdom eschews, may we be filled with God's wisdom, gentle in our treatment of ourselves and of others, seeking to bring peace and hope in all we do. And may God's love surround us all, today and every day. Thank you.